always a delight to be back. I have been back once since the new centre had spoken in this room. It's a great pleasure to come as I have just left Iraq after two years as ambassador and as Eugene said, three postings. I've never worked more than once in any other Middle Eastern country and so I'm probably, in the 30 years that I've been in the diplomatic service, because uh, I dropped out to take a couple of years to come and do my masters here, I've probably worked in and on Iraq more than any other country and as Eugene said I was there from day one, really, driving up behind the American military from Kuwait and opening the embassy in April 2003, and then going back as deputy ambassador in 9-10 and now two years as ambassador. And in those 16 years, I think it's fair to say, if I were to summarize it, Iraq has either been on the slide in security terms, in terms of violence, in terms of conflict, or it's been stable, but fragile, and at the crossroads. The other trend is that Iranian influence has, by and large, every year grown in Iraq. And so I thought, even before the last month of protests, uh, when we decided on the title here, that we should focus in this talk a little bit on Iran, as well as uh, Iraq, which is possibly the hottest Middle East foreign policy topic, certainly in the United States, but to a great extent in Europe and across the international community. Iraq, for those of you who have not yet had a chance to visit, and I sincerely hope if you take an interest in the Middle East that you will get a chance to visit. If you look at Foreign Office travel advice, we don't advise against travel to the south of Iraq or to the Kurdistan region, much of the north and northeast of Iraq. Baghdad as well. Um, now, the security in Baghdad is much better than it's been really since 2003. So I personally with close protection, of course, was able to travel around more of Iraq than I've ever done before. But many journalists, many businessmen, and a good number of academics and researchers and analysts have visited and been able to visit safely with uh, appropriate protection, but certainly nothing too expensive or nothing that would make it impossible to achieve one's goals. So Iraq, I think, is going to return within academe as well as within political debate around the Middle East because actually, in general, it's stabilizing. Now, I say that without hiding the fact there are many challenges, and I'll talk a little bit about those now. We've got protests which started on October the 1st, which for over a month now have been a feature of Baghdad, of Basra, and of the whole of southern Iraq, largely the Shia majority uh, areas of Iraq. We haven't seen those protests in the majority Kurdish areas, <coughs> the majority Sunni areas, and I'll explain a little bit about that as well. But just to say, for those of you who have not been, Iraq, you know, for me, as I said, I've probably done more on Iraq, but it's a real passion. Iraq, if, if you get the bug for the Middle East, for all its challenges and all its glories, then Iraq is times 10 or times 100, okay? The positives, the great history of civilization, the golden age in the 8th century, the great civilizations going back into ancient history, Sumer and Babylon, the Assyrian civilization. In modern times, uh, an educated elite second to none in the region and a living standard, whatever the political issues with the dictation of Saddam Hussein, a living standard that was comparable to Eastern Europe, certainly in the 70s and 80s. <coughs> and although that middle class was never given the freedom that it needed to thrive under the dictatorship that fell in 2003, nevertheless it's still present, largely in the diaspora, a lot of it here in the UK, the Iraqi diaspora in the UK is largely professional, well-educated doctors, engineers, and professors, indeed. 
A lot of the Iraqis that went back after 2003 had British passports, and there is still an Iraqi professional middle class in country. And this put together with what is well known, the oil wealth, extraordinary oil wealth of the country, second largest oil producer in OPEC, 5 million barrels of oil a day. That's second only to Saudi Arabia within OPEC, and much bigger than, say, Abu Dhabi in the United Arab Emirates. But, and this is also important, a population of 40 million, growing at a million a year. Not a good sign, actually. This is a sign of reverse development, people having larger families for reasons of economic insecurity. So a population heading now up towards where Egypt is and where Iran is and where Turkey is, up to the 80 and 90 million to about 2050. So that huge oil wealth will have to be used in a way that can deal with that huge population. That is not a challenge, even Saudi Arabia with a population in the upper 20s is not facing that sort of challenge. So you've got these positives, you've got these challenges. I feel, and I've always felt this since I arrived and started to get to know Iraq, the positives and the negatives in Iraq are very finely balanced. And I think the thing that is so gripping about working I wish you a chance to do that, whether in terms of research or in terms of any profession you pursue, is you feel that balance with, through hard work and determination and effort can be swung in the right direction. The Iraqis themselves are absolutely amazing. All this heritage and the wealth of the country, but nevertheless the challenges of violence and division and a very difficult regional situation. And in the last two years, I and my team in Baghdad have worked incredibly hard to get Iraq on the right path. And I think there was actually probably more of a sense of hope at this time than there has been for the last 16 years. As I said, I, Iraq was on the slide from 2003, 2008. <coughs> it was on the slide from about 2011, 2014, 15. Violence increased. But in the two interim periods, the last two years, the last two or three years, and the period from about 8 to 11, actually there <coughs> was a stability. There was, it was fragile and reversible, but there was a chance to move the politics and the economics in the right direction. It didn't happen for reasons, again I'll explain later, between 8 and 11, for reasons essentially of sectarianism in governance. That is not a feature now, and that's why I think there's more hope that this time that reform politically, economically, that can push Iraq in the right direction. And that balance, that feeling that the strengths and the weaknesses, the positives and the negatives, can be turned to the good, means that I, for me, and many of my colleagues work in Iraq, it's the most absorbing, satisfying, compelling work that we've done working in any of the Middle Eastern countries. And I've spent most of my career, because I learned Arabic for the Foreign Office in the Middle East, uh, and I've learned Arabic in Egypt, I've worked in Saudi Arabia and the Gulf. All absolutely amazing places to work, but nothing like Iraq. The situation today is one of protest. It is a continuation of what we all saw in the Arab Spring in 2011. It is exactly the same demands, it's exactly the same spirit as we saw in Egypt and Tunisia and other countries for jobs, for better services, for dignity, for uh, a chance, particularly for young Iraqis and young educated Iraqis to have the opportunities they feel quite rightly that they are due. The system in Iraq that has grown up since 2003, although it is a democratic system to the extent that elections are held and everybody is included in a big tent, is also divided in a quota system between the different sects and ethnicities. And that has led to an apportionment of positions in government, of political and civil service positions, a dividing up of opportunities to seek access to the oil wealth, which essentially fosters corruption 
because you either take a chunk of that oil wealth or you attach yourself to a patronage network to somebody or some institution or some group or some political party. And what it doesn't allow is for that government to essentially create opportunity throughout wider society. And don't forget that demographic point of 40 million Iraqis. A million young Iraqis entering the labor market every year. And uh, like a lot of rentier states in the Gulf, job creation is basically job creation within the public service, civil sector, civil service jobs, public sector jobs, which are seen as secure and are doled out on this sectarian quota system as part of patronage networks. So not on merit. So the bureaucracy, the inheritance from the dictatorship, which was a, a central economy, state socialist system, recognizable as something you know, close to Eastern Europe in the, under the Soviet Union, that bureaucracy and that system now of job creation under the sectarian quota system acts as a real dead weight on liberating the potential of that economy. And that's what people are protesting about. Graduates in particular, a lot have gone to university. They have not got a job, civil service job, at the end of it, which is what they would have expected. Uh, the private sector has not yet been liberated enough to create those jobs. And as a result, they, as much as the poor, the bottom 5% of Iraqi society, are on the streets. And it is in the Shia areas. Now, what's interesting, and this is, if you like, the key difference between protests that have happened in Iraq since 2011, since the Arab Spring, is then they were largely in the Sunni areas. Sunnis feeling disenfranchised because of the change in the power structure after 2003, where through democratic elections, but also through the sectarian quota system, the Shia, the, the majority of the population in Iraq, took charge. The Sunnis, the minority, had been in charge, more or less, under all the regimes, Saddam Hussein's, but all the regimes since the British Mandate and the end of the Ottoman Empire. But of course, the Ottomans for centuries had made sure that the Sunnis were uh, in charge in Iraq, although Iraq itself was always a marginal, it was a marcher land. The Persian Empire would occasionally take over and the Shia would be promoted. The Ottomans would come back, the Sunnis would be promoted. And that sense of being a marcher land over the last 500 years, of a land of you know, the traditional up and down in Arab politics that Ibn Khaldun and others have talked about for centuries, was particularly exaggerated in Iraq because it was a marcher land. It was a rich land, a land of great civilizations, but a vulnerable land because it is a, it's a, it's a river valley, Mesopotamia. It's not a mountainous area like Iran where Persia and Persian civilization and Persian empires had a redoubt, or even Anatolia, or even Egypt before the modern world where the deserts on either side of the Nile effectively made it very difficult to invade and conquer. It happened occasionally, but in Iraq, it happened all the time. And that is the inheritance. It's the negative inheritance, if you like, that makes it so difficult now to get Iraqis to believe that they can, through institutions, through a pluralist political system, actually resolve their differences politically. It's possible because the history of the Middle East, and particularly their neighbors, you know, has shown that a modern state structure can be developed, unlike other Arab countries, they have next to them Iran and Turkey, who you know, are definitely big, powerful, successful modern states, a very different model uh, in each case. Iraq, I think, is influenced, probably positively, by the fact that it has neighbours that it knows it has to compete with, if you like, 
has to compete with in sovereignty and uh, independence terms, sovereignty in terms of effective ability to control the territory and to implement policies on that territory because it has those two big neighbours. And above all, as I said, Iran has, over the last 16 years, grown in influence in Iraq, developing connections with all the leading Shia politicians, not just on the basis of religious and cultural connections, although that <coughs> is there, because Iraq still is a very Arab culture, and the traditional divide between Arab and Persian is still there. There is a very strong competition between the religious authorities in Iran and in Iraq, between Najaf in Iraq and Qom in Iran. This is strengthened by an ideological competition between Iran's official ruling ideology of Wilayat al-Faqih and the ruling, essentially ruling ideology now of the religious establishment in Iraq since 2003 is to support a national democratic model. This is quite an extraordinary historic development, which I don't think is factored enough into our debates about the Middle East, and particularly Shia politics in the Middle East. Najaf is challenging Qom, and the Najaf is traditionally a stronger centre of learning and authority. Uh, and it's important, I think, and this leaves you know, the sort of competition between Oxford and Cambridge or Harvard and Yale <laughs> way behind. I mean, behind what we're seeing today politically is, in fact, the future of Shia religious and political authority between Najaf and Qom, Wilayat al-Faqih, and what is now developing as you know, an Iraqi way of a national democratic pluralist model. When the US brought that, if you like, in 2003 and put that on the table, that was challenged, there was competition, but actually the Shia religious authorities, Ayatollah Sistani, who is the grand marja, and although he's extremely old, has retained his preeminence, took this and gave it religious authority. It's the reason why there is still a rudimentary democracy in Iraq, is that the Shia accepted through their religious authority, through their participation in elections, that this would be the model they would follow, and a very different model to that of, of Iran. So this situation today is one of people demanding more of their democratic system, more of their government, more of their institutions, job services, tackling corruption, and to reform this Mahasasa system. But let's look at it from Iran's point of view. The thing probably in my time as ambassador, the month that defined so much of the time I've just spent there, was the month of May 2018, which was a general election month, but it was also the month that President Trump pulled out of the Iran nuclear deal, the JCPOA. The two together really have defined the context through which everything that's happening in Iraq now should be seen, in my view. So first of all, Iraq has a general election in which for the first time since 2003 and the first elections that happened, the religious authority said to the Shia, it is not your religious obligation to vote. It is your choice. But if you don't vote, don't complain about what you end up with, which is a very fair way of stating it. But people already, what these protesters are expressing, many, many people in Iraq are already feeling the government is not delivering, that we cannot effect change through our vote, and we're going to express our contempt, really, for this political elite that we regard as useless and corrupt, and basically defending their own interests within the sectarian quota system, the Mahasasa system, as it's called. We won't vote. So many, many Shia held back, 
in terms of the registration and some form of participation to vote, the official figure was about 40%. The real figure of people who registered and went on the day was much lower, probably 20%. It was actually higher in many Sunni areas because after the defeat of Daesh as a territorial caliphate, many Sunnis came into the political system for the first time who had been held back uh, for various reasons from participating before. So in some Sunni areas, the vote was, uh, was up. But in the Shia areas, it was down. And what happened was, as always, those people who organized their vote did much better because those parties that relied on a wider popular support did less well. And so what you had was two big winners in that election. Sodom, Tadar Sodom, who has a Shia movement rooted in the poorest sections of society, got what he usually gets, plus a little more, two million, three million votes, and it actually won him the election because so many people had stayed at home. And then a second group just came behind in second place was a pro-Iranian coalition of groups that had been linked to the militias formed under Ayatollah Sistani's blessing in 2014 to fight Daesh. It's called the Popular Mobilization Forces or the Hasht al-Shabi. These groups linked to the Hasht al-Shabi also did well. And basically what you have is a defeat for the ruling party, the Dawah party, which is an Islamist party, Shia Islamist party had been in power for 13 years, and this is again another historic turning point for the Middle East, when has a well-entrenched Islamist party been in power for 13 years has basically handed over power peacefully in an election? That's essentially what happened. The Dawah party had, had put roots into the state through this Mahasasa sectarian probe system, and a lot of their people have been removed in the last years. So the system has been rebalanced. So that's what happened then. Put that, though, in the context of the US withdrawal from the nuclear deal. Iran knows it is now about to face major economic sanctions from the US, uh, which it knew then, and it says very clearly now, we regard as economic war. This is an attempt to pressure Iran in a way that ultimately they believe is about regime change, but certainly is about changing Iran's policy in the region, Iran's policy on the nuclear fire, Iran's policy on the development of ballistic missiles. And Iran had prepared for this day. Patrick Coburn, who writes extremely well on Iraq in The Independence, and please do have a look at his articles in recent days. You know, he quotes one Iraqi saying, you know, the Iranians have been developing their contingency planning as well as their overall strategy for the region for the best part of 40 years. They had a plan for this. Iraq has been, and would be particularly under this circumstance, the forward defense of Iran against any threat posed by the US or its allies, or Saudi Arabia, or Israel. And it would also be, because of sanctions, it would be the economic lung for Iran, both in formal legal trade, but also in smuggling, and also in somehow getting hold of dollar revenue, because that's the thing that's putting most pressure on Iran at the moment. Uh, out of Iraq, and Iraq would play that role, and Iran had enough influence to make that happen. And that, following the elections in May, and following the withdrawal of the US from the, the nuclear deal, is what's unfolded over the last 18 months. So there could be now a coercive 
primarily coercive response to clear these protesters out of the squares, not shooting 100 people in broad daylight necessarily, but a really ugly use of intimidation, disappearances, threats, and violence, very often at night and away from the main squares, but with the families and connections and some of the protesters themselves. That is happening now, Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch International, some journalists, very brave journalists, uh, are reporting on this. This, I fear, is the most likely way that the protests are going to be dealt with. And of course, for the UK and like-minded countries, whether the US uh, and our allies in the coalition, including Canada, Australia, and New Zealand, or the European Union, countries uh, supporting the UN and our excellent UN special representative. It's very important that our policy response is in part about deterring these human rights abuses, including uh, attempts to intimidate free media who are attempting to gather the facts so that someday those who are behind the worst crimes will be held accountable. That is one of the most important things, I think, for the UK and our allies that we can do at the moment. The most stabilising response and what we've actually got to work for, of course, is that there is a proper, legitimate, honest response to the demands of the protesters, which will require reform, both political and economic reform, to free up the private sector to create the jobs, to remove the leaching of so much resource oil revenue out of the central treasury that the ministries can't afford principles is a rich country they can't they can't afford because their actual budgets are limited almost to the wages that are paid to their civil servants so not the development of services not the development of infrastructure that's what we've got to push for and that's what we are pushing for so in my last month apart from all the work on restraint and human rights and free media and holding to account those perpetrators of force of excessive force uh, or indeed criminal violence by any side Inevitably, in these situations, there will be some on the streets who will also be committing criminal violence against public and private property, but it's primarily to make sure that we establish some form of accountability and mechanism. But we also want to give space to that government to show what it can do. There are calls for early elections, which may actually be part of the solution. The UN is working on a plan with the President of the Republic of Iraq, um, to reform the electoral law, to give it more credibility, so that Iraqis will actually vote this time. It's really important that we don't have elections where the turnout is 20, 30, or 40 percent. We really need people to vote for change, because if change doesn't come peacefully, you know, it is in one way or another going to come violently. So that's what we're working on at the moment. We are working in good company in the sense that the Shia religious establishment, the Marjayed, still has a lot of influence, are pushing in this direction of reform. The international community, led by the UN, is pushing in that same direction. The Iranians, there is a challenge for Iran. Iran has clear strategic interests in Iraq, but if it doesn't allow space for this reform to happen, it's actually going to destabilize the situation, which cannot be in its interest. And therefore, the Iranian role, the ability to flex, to allow an Iraqi government to deliver more for the Iraqi people, has got to be a key element of the equation. And that's the sort of thing I talk about when we sit with the Iranians. I should just say something about the UK role, 
uh, because I'd like to say thank you to my great colleagues in Baghdad. Uh, because I have this, it really is a passionate connection to the work that we do there. I'm probably prouder of leading that embassy than I have been of leading the other embassies and all the great work that my teams have done because we have a tremendous amount of talented, very often young and energetic officers working for the FCO, for the Ministry of Defence, for DFID, for the Home Office, and they're working on a range of issues, political reform, economic reform, security sector reform, counter-terrorism, of course, Daesh is still, there are still elements of Daesh there, including foreign fighters that uh, you know, would wish to um, conduct operations against us directly and against our interests, and that goes for many other countries in the world, in the Middle East and the wider, wider world. I'd like to thank them for the great job they're doing because they too, I think, anybody who works in Iraq feels this balance between the strengths and the weaknesses and the challenges and the opportunities and the feeling that you really can make a difference, which is one of the things I think that keep diplomats going through difficult times, particularly like now where things really seem to be hanging in the balance in a very high stakes game. So I wish them well. <coughs> and for those of you who are working on conflict issues, not just Middle East issues. I'd like to finish by telling you about the book that's probably taught me more on this posting than any other. So when I go on a posting, of course, uh, because of the great education I had at St. Anthony's, I always get the key books which are on my reading lists or Eugene recommends or is written in many cases and others in the faculty. And I did that when I first went, so the history of Iraq, and, and then on the second posting, you know, I, I reviewed you know, all the things that have gone wrong since 2003, which is something we probably debate a lot, particularly in the UK, with our many, many, I think eight official reports, and now the Chilcot report, the War and Peace report, basically, I think, how many volumes, 14 volumes or whatever, you know, everything is, is there. So that... On my second post. On my third posting, I did something which, of course, we all have to do, which is jump out of our silos and go cross-disciplinary. And it was I was put onto this by the deputy chief economist of DFID, who came out to say DFID, our, de our development ministry, is going to stay in Iraq. This is new DFID, okay? Because usually DFID come for a humanitarian crisis and then leave, particularly in a in a rich or middle-income country like Iraq, and go to poor areas and do po poverty reduction. But DFID's mandate has expanded, and so it now does quite a lot of work in middle-income economies that are underachieving to ensure that those economies become successful, uh, both in developmental terms for their own people, but of course as, as markets for British business, eventually. And that's been going on for years, but it's even more important as we go through this Brexit uh, transition. And he came, and he basically said, look, all the problems I see in Iraq, I do see as I travel around the world, going to Pakistan and Nigeria and Central Asia, and he said, you know, it's basically something that has been conceptualized, and now there is a research program on it, by work done by Douglas North and Wallace and Weingast, who are development economists, actually. But he gave me this book, or recommended this book, called Violence and Social Orders. And it's basically a, an attempt to you know, theorize why some countries are development successes and some countries aren't. And what are the processes that the successful countries go through? Or what are the crossroads where a country that doesn't stabilize and develop goes the wrong way and a country that stabilizes and develops goes the right way? And it goes right back to European history. How did this happen in Europe through the late Middle Ages and the early modern period? It then looks at uh, examples in Africa and Latin America 
And not actually the Middle East. It wasn't a focus of, of Douglas North, who won, by the way, the Nobel Prize for <coughs> back in 1993. But when I read this book, I suddenly thought, yes, this explains a lot about Iraq, about the conflicts in the Middle East, and about why various Middle Eastern countries seem to have taken a wrong turning. And so, in brief, it is the idea that the first duty of any ruling elite, of course, is to stabilize a country, is to achieve security, achieve their own security, but to calm down violence. By seizing control of resources, imposing order, and then essentially buying off a critical mass of groups that could threaten, violently threaten, that order. And if you think about medieval monarchies throughout Europe, that is, that is what happened here. There then comes a stage, when that process has happened, you end up with an elite that essentially has patronage networks, and it just keeps on buying it off as, as best it can, a critical mass of people so that it's not threatened. If that elite eventually takes a long-term view that it would like to legitimize its rule, it would like its uh, successors, both family successors and class successors, to sustain that rule, the trend has been for that elite to accept some rules of the game for itself about how they divide up the benefits and how they release enough resource to pay off this critical mass, which of course that critical mass very often grows because the population grows. If you're half successful, uh, expectations rise. If a middle class starts to emerge, of course they're going to have uh, new demands. If that elite agrees rules of the game among itself in order to be able to sustain that rule, eventually a middle class will grow which will demand that rule of law for itself. And then you head off on this route. It doesn't get rid of corruption completely, but then you head off on this route to development. If that elite doesn't impose the rule of law on itself, doesn't agree rules of the game for itself, let alone then create a middle class. But if you like maintains a gangster mafia hold on the territory or on the economy, of course it then you know, is not able to spread the opportunity, it is not able to buy off eventually a critical mass and it destabilizes. Limited access orders and open access orders are the way they've conceptualized it and how you move from a limited access order to an open access order. I'll just leave it at that, because it's absolutely fascinating, and a research program is now underway, looking at specific case studies, including, I believe, Middle East. Now, I didn't know anything about this. I didn't even conceptualize Iraq like that when I was there, because, of course, development economics happens somewhere over there, doesn't it? So, you know, again, like a good Antonian, I have managed to make that leap out of my silo and to, to read a book, Violence and Social Orders. And I left, by the way, a copy of this book with the Prime Minister of Iraq, who is a deeply intellectual man, Arzal Mahdi, who is an economist, French-trained economist. I also left it with the President, who is uh, an outstanding example of an educated Iraqi in the UK, actually, Cardiff and Liverpool. He was educated in statistics and computer science, but he has a really, really good feel for, for social science. And I said, look, I have learned more from this book than any other. And I think actually you're at the crossroads now where if you take this right decision, if you open out this order, you will actually succeed. So I leave you with still a message of hope around Iraq. The last two times I've come to talk after being an ambassador was Yemen, where we've just got a political process underway, which unfortunately has since collapsed. And you will know the tragedy that has ensued. And Syria, where I had to leave, unfortunately, a message of doom and gloom. And really, 
unable to advocate a greater UK role in dealing with the situation because Russia and Iran had intervened. But on Iraq, most sincerely, and for a change, I leave with a message of hope. And so for those of you who maybe have taken an interest in Iraq or would like to take an interest in Iraq, I would say now is the time. The World Bank have analyzed statistically when countries go through major civil conflicts or state collapse, as Iraq did obviously in 2003, it takes on average 30 years to stabilize. Now for very good reason, the neoconservatives who planned and advocated for the invasion didn't want to say the commitment will be 30 years. But actually, I think Iraq, my experience of 16 years, is we're about halfway through. But it is stabilized, and I think it's going to have a major uh, impact on the region if we get it right, for good. Because, as I said, we have a democratic system that is functioning well enough. We have a religious authority that's backing a national democratic pluralist system. And because the Iraqis themselves, they show in the streets, are willing to die, actually, for their liberty and for a system that works for them. And I think that is of major historic importance for the Middle East, and we don't hear enough about it. And it's partially because, for an older generation, this is all about Bush and Blair, and Hubris <laughs> Nemesis, and isn't this the greatest disaster of American foreign policy or British foreign policy since whenever, Suez, or the Second World War, the World War, whenever you like to say. That is fine, and I think that historic argument will go on and on and on. But actually, Iraq is too amazing to leave it at that. And I hope I've been able to introduce you today or to... Uh, elicit some interest today about why it's absolutely at the fulcrum of the battle of ideas in the Middle East. It could go either way, and I don't regret in the slightest that I've spent more time working on Iraq than anywhere else in the region. Thank you. Thank you.